Now, as I said, this is the last part of the the series that we've been considering on, on the theme, What Makes Christ So Special? What Makes Christ So Special? And summed up in these two verses of this chapter, verses 2 and 3, you find phrase after phrase that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that each of these phrases is extremely rich with theological truth and gospel power. Beginning with the, the verse 2 where he says, "...hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son." And then finishing in verse 3 by dealing with those elements of doctrine that pertain to his incarnation. What this one who was with the Father from all eternity has done when he took to himself human flesh to come into the world to save his people from their sins. And so this morning we began to deal with this section in verse 3, specifically the part where it begins at the end where it says, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Both of those phrases together tell us of the atonement and the session of Christ. Now, beginning this morning, we and, and if you weren't here, I would highly recommend that you go to Sermon Audio and listen to the message. There's going to be a lot that I'm just going to skip over and just touch, touch on the highlights to, to give you a refresh. But uh, there were a lot of details that we went into today concerning the doctrine as it's stated, but also concerning the need, as Jude said in his epistle, to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's one thing to consider sound doctrine as it's found in the scripture, and it's another thing entirely to defend the truth of that doctrine against the heretical attacks that are waged against those doctrines in our day today. And in dealing with, specifically dealing with, the atoning work of Christ, we spent a great deal of time refuting the errors of the Church of Rome, the attacks that are brought specifically by the Church of Rome on the work of Christ. In dealing with the person of Christ in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3, much of what is said in those verses, the Church of Rome has no issue with. But when you get into the work that Christ Jesus did when he came into the world to suffer and make atonement for the sins of his people, well, that is where the orthodox paths of the Reformed Church and the Church of Rome diverge. It's around the time of the writing of the Council of Trent that officially the Church of Rome became an apostate church, a heretical church, because of the statements that they made concerning the doctrine of justification. And so understanding the attacks and the need to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, we began this morning by considering the atoning work of Christ alone can expunge the sins of his people. Only the atoning work of Christ can remove the sins of his people. The first part that we saw was that the stain of sin must be removed. The stain of sin must be removed. And we see that in our verse, when he had by himself purged our sins. Then we considered that Christ alone can perform such a work. Because the verse not only says that our sins needed to be purged, but the, the passage says when he had by himself purged our sins. Christ alone 
is the only one that can perform such a work. The few things that we saw under that point is man cannot purge his own sins. Strikes at the heart of the pride of man. Man cannot purge his own sins. Then we saw that man cannot assist in the purging of his own sins. And spent a great deal of time dealing with some of the attacks that are brought against gospel truth by the Church of Rome. Many of the canons that the Council of Trent produced, the statements of their doctrine that went after and attacked passages like this, the doctrine of justification as was taught by the Reformers. It wasn't really until the Council of Trent that the Church of Rome put pen and ink to their doctrine and stated that if anyone believes, not just what the Reformers were saying, but ultimately the Pauline doctrine of justification, specifically as it's laid out for us in the book of Romans, but also in the other epistles. And, and, and really when you understand the nature of the word of God, even in, in the Old Testament, passages where men were trusting in the promise and the Lord counted their trust or that faith as righteousness. It's not just Pauline doctrine in dealing with justification. It's the biblical doctrine of justification. The Church of Rome waged war from that day, the day of the Council of Trent and the the canons that were written, waged war against the biblical doctrine of justification. And so we spent some time dealing with that. Not only that man can't purge his own sins, man cannot assist in the purging of his sins. And then the third thing we saw under that point is that sin in its entirety was purged by Christ. Sin in its entirety was purged by Christ. Finishing uh, the section that we were considering this morning with a number of the canons from the Council of Trent showing exactly what the Church of Rome believes uh, concerning those who, who trust in Christ by faith alone. And so I want to pick up the study this evening by continuing under this section of the atonement. And we're going to get to the session of Christ a little bit later. But I want to finish this section by continuing on in dealing with the atonement. And under this point of sin in its entirety was purged by Christ. By considering another attack that's brought against this doctrine by the church of Rome. You may may even see where I'm going to go with this attack by the word that is used in our text. The text itself singles out in the atonement of Christ that our sins were purged. When he had by himself purged our sins. The fact that Christ has purged all of the sins of his people strikes at the heart of the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory. You can see the word purged found in the word purgatory. The work of Christ, the work of Christ alone is sufficient to purge away all the sins of all of his people for all eternity. There's no need for purgatory. What does the church of Rome mean? If it's so clear from the scriptures that Christ has purged away our sins, what does the church of Rome mean when it promotes this place called purgatory. Well, the actual definition of purgatory is taught by the Church of Rome is that it's a place of suffering, and this is according to Dr. Cairns in his dictionary of theological terms, it's a place of suffering 
where, according to Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox dogma, those who die at peace with the church, listen to this, those who die at peace with the church and not in a state of mortal sin, are purified and made fit for heaven. Okay, so there's a place that is a place of suffering where everyone goes that is in in good standing with the church that are not in a state of mortal sin. We we dealt with the folly of that this morning, how how the church of Rome divides sins into lesser sins and greater sins, mortal sins being the, the great sins. If, you're not, if, you're, if you didn't die in a state of mortal sin and you're at peace with the church, you go to this place of suffering. And in this place, you are purified and made fit for heaven. Cairns goes on to say, the theory is that all unbaptized adults and all baptized adults dying in mortal sin go straight to hell. Saints and martyrs go straight to heaven. But the vast majority of the faithful must endure purgatorial fire. Now that's the doctrine that the Church of Rome promotes in their doctrine of purgatory. If you die in in mortal sin, you go straight to hell. The only way a Roman Catholic goes straight to glory is if you are a martyr or if you're declared a saint. Okay? Okay? Most Roman Catholics don't even know this. When you go to a Roman Catholic funeral, it's a very sad place because there's no confidence that that person is with Christ. I went to a a Roman Catholic funeral not too long ago. My aunt passed away, and this was uh, several years ago. I took my boys with me and my wife. We went to the funeral. They had never been in a Roman Catholic service. I wanted them to be exposed, to see firsthand the errors of the Church of Rome. Because if you're raised in the gospel, if you're raised under a constant ministry of gospel preaching, it's not hard to see the errors that are being promoted by the Church of Rome. And so my boys always heard of my experiences in the Catholic Church and why I so vehemently opposed the theology of the Catholic Church, right? I, there's a lot about the Catholic Church that's admirable, okay? People usually, they, they about fall over in the pew when they hear someone like me say that. But there are things that are worth emulating that are found in the Catholic Church. One of the things, and I've said this often, I'll say it again, is the, 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 the environment of the parish or the community, that is associated with the church. A very tight-knit community. A very firm grip and grasp upon the people. Needs of, the, of, of people in the church constantly being met. Concern being shown for people in the parish. The Church of Rome puts Protestant churches to shame. Puts Protestant churches to shame with their sense of community. That's why in Roman Catholic societies in nations that are largely Roman Catholic, and in families whose heritage for many, many generations has been Roman Catholic. That's why it's very hard for a Catholic to leave the church, even after they see the errors of theology. Because the church has so mastered the sense of community and the sense of of parish that it isn't just 
the theology connected to the church. It's the life of the community is connected to the church. And so there's that extra pressure that's put upon someone whose eyes are being opened to the errors of the theology of the church. Very often it's very difficult for them to leave the church. It was, it was tough for us. I was, I was telling some brethren today about the, the nature of the relationship that we had with the priest. Right? This, this, this priest was like an older brother to me. We, we never had, in my days in the Catholic Church, we never had any interactions that were, were negative. No scandals, no, none of the molestation and, and, and other issues that, that has caused the, the microscope to be shining upon the Catholic I had a very positive experience in the church. I had a very positive experience with our priest. We loved him. He's part of the family, practically. So when we left, there, because of that sense, it's, a, it's like a familial relationship that you develop with, with the priest and with those in the church. It, it makes it extra difficult to leave the church. Some of the Protestant churches I've been a, a part of, you look for a reason to leave because of the lack of fellowship, right? The first chance you get, you want to leave because the people, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing there. There's no love. There's no fellowship. There's no warmth. You find, at least I found that in my experience in the Church of Rome. And so while I say all these things about the Church of Rome, I want to make it clear that there are many things that, that I, I admire about the church. But when it comes to the work of Christ, they preach a damnable heresy. A damnable heresy that must be exposed. And one of those things is the error of purgatory. I wanted my boys, is getting back full circle. Most of the times when I go off in a story, I, I kind of lose track of where I was. As I started off on this story, I kind of made a mental note. This is where you're going with this. Don't get lost in the story. So getting back full circle, I took my boys. I wanted them to hear firsthand. I wanted them to hear firsthand. And one of the clear errors that they spoke to me about after hearing this priest talk was the lack of assurance and confidence that my Aunt Jane was in heaven. He actually went so far as to say she wasn't in heaven. I'll give him credit. Most priests don't have the, the boldness and the, the, the wherewithal to actually remain true to doctrine. Most of the priests that I've been around jump in with the, the familiar saying, oh, she's in a better place. I assure you, as a Roman Catholic, if you believe what they teach, she is not in a better place. She is in purgatory, suffering for her sins. That's what the church teaches. So he got up there and he said, she, in essence, was not in heaven. And he said, we need to pray her in. He said that. We need to pray her in. Why does the Roman Catholic feel the need to pray their loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven? Why do they feel that need? Because they do not understand that all of the sins of all of God's people has been forever purged by the work of Christ. There's no additional need for a place of suffering. If you have to go to a place of suffering 
to continue to pay for your sin, the only place of suffering you're going to go, according to the word of God, is hell itself. Either Christ's work of purging away your sin will keep you out of hell because he bore the wrath of God, or Christ's work of atonement has not purged away your sins, meaning all of your sins and the guilt that you have in Adam will drag you to hell. There is no third place where believers and those that are in good standing with the church go to continue to be purged from their sins. What an insult. What an absolute insult to the work of Christ. If this folly of purgatory be true, then when Christ gave up the ghost upon the cross and cried aloud that it is finished, he was either grossly mistaken or purposefully lying. One of the two is true. Either he was grossly mistaken or he was lying on purpose because there is nothing completed upon the work of, uh, upon upon the cross Christ finished nothing if the souls of those that are in good standing with the church have to go suffer for their sin Christ said upon the cross it is finished if this is true that purgatory is a place we go nothing was finished upon the cross but rather the work of salvation was only just begun and if it ever was to be completed According to the Church of Rome, it required millions of years of additional suffering in a place of fire just to make the faithful presentable before God. It's absolute, utter nonsense. It's fiction. This place does not exist. They actually deprive or derive their, their scriptural support from the apocryphal books, the, the apocrypha. And even those passages are stretched. There is nothing from Genesis to Revelation that teaches such folly. Rather, it teaches that Christ purged our sins. Or if you want to use the words of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. That's it. If you have any hope of being saved from your sin, please take my word for it that you will not be found in purgatory. The only hope that sinners have of being purged from, your, from their sins is this man who has offered one sacrifice for sins forever. This work, thirdly, under this section was done at an exactly preordained time as well. It was done at an exactly preordained time. It says, our verse says, when he had by himself purged our sins. The prophecies, the exhortations in the word of God that told of a savior who would come. Almost immediately after man fell into sin, was pointing to a time when this Savior would come. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
There was a moment in time when Christ came into the world. And there was an, a, mo- a moment in time when he atoned for the sins of his people. They even understood this in the Old Testament scriptures. One of the greatest uh, passages dealing with the time when Christ would come. And the nature of his work is found in Daniel chapter 2. If you have a Bible tonight, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Most of the time I just read the passages. But the book of Daniel chapter 2 gives us one of the indications of the fullness of the time. As, as Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter, five, chapter 4. So Daniel chapter 2, Daniel was carried away captive to Babylon. He was promoted in the government of Babylon to the point that he served the king. And in Daniel chapter 2, the king has this dream, this vision. He sees this image. The head is made of gold and and so on. You you read down through uh, the, the passage And he's looking for someone to interpret this dream. Head of gold, chest of silver, and and iron, and and brass, and and all the metals that are involved. And Daniel is called in to give the interpretation of the dream. He begins this, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. And he goes on to describe this image, uh, this Terrible image, verse 32, this image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver and his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part of clay. And thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and of clay and break them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Strange image, or strange dream, this image that has all these beautiful parts, especially the head of gold. And as you go down the image, the the metals cheapen, as it were. Gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay mixed together. Daniel says, this is the dream in verse 36. And we will tell the king, tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. Right? Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom was the head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And a fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, it shall break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes part of potter's clay and part of iron, The kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry uh, miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so shall the kingdom be partly strong and partly broken. Whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, 
but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron not, uh, is not mixed with clay. Right? All this description of this great image, kingdom after kingdom, these four kingdoms, one coming after the next. In verse 44, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. And the, interpre- and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. In the last of these kingdoms shall this stone cut without hands come and shall smash the image. And that stone shall be a mountain to fill the whole earth. The God of heaven shall raise up a king in those days whose kingdom shall never end. I say that this is a timeline for the time when the Lord would come. The fullness of the time. Did it ever dawn on you or did you ever think of the, the, the scenario, the, the scene that played out when Christ was born, that wise men came from the east, and they immediately asked the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They didn't come to Jerusalem and say, we saw this star, and now you have to tell us what this star is about. What's the meaning of this star? No, the the, the ones who were the scholars and the astrologers from the east understood the prophecy that was given to Daniel so long ago. That in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven, right, the God of the heavens, shall raise up a kingdom whose king a king whose kingdom shall have no end. So they understood Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was gone. The Greeks, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they were in the days of the the fourth of these kingdoms. And now they see the star, the God of the heavens is, is, is showing them that the time has come. That this great prophecy is going to be fulfilled. No one needed to tell these men what it was about. They show up in Jerusalem and say, where is he that is born king? That would have shocked Even the theologians in Israel. How is it possible that these men from the east understand that right now the time is, the time has come, that the king of kings would be born? They understood from the writings of Daniel of the specific time. The work was done exactly at the preordained time when he had by himself purged our sins. This God who created all things, who upholds all things by the word of his power, took human flesh at a preordained time for the purpose of coming into the world to fulfill all of the promises that were made to our fathers concerning what Christ would do. He took human flesh in order to purge away our sins when he had by himself purged our sins. And then we see also that the atonement is efficacious only for the elect. When he had by himself purged our sins, when he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down 
on the right hand of the Father. The exclusivity of the atonement. When Christ came into the world, did he come into the world to purge everybody's sins that ever were born? Was that his purpose? Well, if everyone's sins were purged that was ever born, everyone would be saved. But everyone's not saved. So what does the passage here mean when it says that when he had by himself purged our sins? You'll hear some people say that Christ died for everybody. You just simply need to come and put your trust in him. While it's true that the free offer of the gospel goes out, we don't discriminate between those that should hear and those that should not hear the preaching of the gospel. Like Paul on Mars Hill, preaching to a group of people in Athens. He preached the gospel. It says, some mocked, others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And some believed. Those that believed were the elect. But the gospel was still preached to all. So the free offer of the gospel goes out. The fact that Christ offered up himself a sacrifice for the elect or the chosen or the church, whatever term you want to use, does not negate the need to give the free offer of the gospel. We preach to all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. But that that does not deal with those for whom Christ died. Who did Christ die for? He died for the hour in this passage when he had by himself purged our sins. In dealing with this, the exclusivity of the atonement, John Owen, uh, the old theologian from the, the days of the Puritans, dealt with this in volume 10 of his works. A lot of his works are very difficult to follow. He's very Very difficult, from my perspective, one of the more difficult of the theologians to follow. And yet, on this issue of for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ make an atonement? He's crystal clear. There's three options that are set before us concerning the atonement. For whom did Christ die? The first is, either Christ died for all of the sins of all men. In which case, all men must be saved. Right? If Christ made an atonement for all of the sins of all men, all men must be saved. Well, we don't believe that. We don't believe in universalism. That's why there's an urgency to the preaching of the gospel. Because men are lost. Right? So it's not option one. Christ did not die for all of the sins of all men, in which case all men must be saved. Option two is that he died for some of the sins for all men, in which case none will be saved. There is no such thing as someone being partially purged. Okay, Christ did not die for some of the sins of all men. The third option is that Christ died for all of the sins of some men, in which case, while some are lost, some will be saved. That's that's what we mean when we talk about particular redemption, particular atonement. The, The work of Christ is efficacious for some men, those who believe. That's the hour in our passage before us, when he had by himself purged our sins. 
It must only be those who have come to Christ. Those for whom the gospel promise is given. Pardon for sin. Cleansing from sin. It's given to those that put their trust in Christ. They are the hour. Now when we know that the first two conclusions are not biblical. They're not right. They're not put, supported by the scriptures. The third is the only accurate statement of the tenor of the word of God. Christ died to make an atonement for all of the sins of all of his people. They are called by many names. The elect go to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. They're called the elect. They're called his church. They're called his sheep. All those given to him by the Father. Consider what Christ says in John chapter 6, verse 37 and, and following. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is, this is needless language. If Christ died for all the sins of all men. What is this strange language Christ is using? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. What's the need to come to Christ? If all the sins of all men have been purged away. No, no. Christ came into the world to save all of those that the Father gave him. The passage goes on to say, And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. All oh, the work of Christ is exclusive for those given to him by the Father. When we say that he has purged away our sins... And that Christ made an atonement for our sins. It's everyone given to him by the Father. John chapter 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. To as many as thou hast given him. It's the same idea that Peter expressed in 2 Peter chapter 3, when speaking of the long-suffering of the Lord. Right? We talk about the, Lord's not, he, the Lord is long-suffering to man. Right? Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is the Lord willing that all, everyone should come to repentance? I assure you, if the will of God is that all men, as, as old Oliver B. Green used to say, this word all means all, A-L-L. Right? He spelled it out as if I couldn't spell the word all. If this all means everybody, and if that's the will of God, that all men should come to repentance, everyone would be saved. Period. End of discussion. 
Christ came to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father will be accomplished. If it's God's will, if He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, there will, be not one, there will not be one soul in hell. Period. But what does the passage say? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. We're talking about judgment, right? He's given this promise. They, they, the very promise that they question, where is the promise of His coming? There's no judgment. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. There's no promise of, of, his, of his coming to judge sin. He hasn't done it before. Peter says he has done it before. He's done it in the flood. And they're willfully ignorant of that. But he goes on to say, the Lord isn't slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. What is, the, what is the will of God? The Lord is not willing that any of us should perish. What is the us word? He's writing the believers. Those whose trust and whose confidence alone was in the work of Christ. Peter says the Lord is coming to judge sin, but the reason why he hasn't judged it yet is because the elect still are being brought in. And to those people, the Lord is long-suffering. The Lord is, is withholding his hand of judgment because there are still souls that need to be born and come to Christ that were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. To those souls, the Lord is, is long-suffering. He's not willing that any of them should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The example that I give very often in dealing with this passage and, and things have somewhat changed in, in our country. But the example that I often give is the example of abortion and the legalization of abortion in the United States. 1973, beginning of 1973, January of 1973, Roe versus Wade legalized abortion in the United States. And I often say that Committing sin and injuring others is a heinous crime. But man, when you, when you injure those that are helpless, right? When you injure, when you injure children, ah, something else gets kicked into gear, right? They even say, and I, obviously I haven't experienced this, but they say in prison, those that are in prison... For years and years under the sentence of judgment by the state. When they hear that someone is being admitted that harmed children. It's over. They get abused in prison. Because even among the convicts. There is this understanding. There is this awareness that there's an, there's an innocence. You don't mess with children. The mafia used that for years as a standard. They don't care how many, how many heads they shoot and how many bodies they whack. You do not go after children, right? You don't go after children. So in 1973, the United States declares you can rip the child out of the womb and you're protected by the laws of this land. If I had absolute authority, if I had been given the place of authority at God's right hand. That would have been it. 
That would have been it for me. The wickedness has gotten to the place that the innocents are being torn to shreds, ripped from the womb of, of mothers and the stamp of approval by the government. That's it. I'll wipe them out and I'll do a work among another nation. I was born in December of 1973. The reason why the Lord did not overthrow our country and wipe us out is because someone that was given to Christ before the foundation of the world had to be born. Someone who, for whom Christ died and shed his blood had to come into the world. And in the process of time had to come under the preaching of the gospel. And in the process of time had to see his need for a savior and come and put his trust in that savior. Do you want to know why the Lord has not wiped out sinful man upon the face of the earth yet? Because he's long suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. So as the days grow darker, right? And as the wickedness of men grows deeper and more and more extreme and more and more wicked. Every day that we see the sun rise is another reminder to us that the Lord is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, any of his people should perish, but that all should come to repent. Every morning when we wake up and we see the sun rise, in itself should be an encouragement and a reminder that the church is moving forward because souls are being saved. And when the last soul is saved for whom Christ died, then the end will come. He's long-suffering to usward. Our passage tells us that. He's purged our sins. These are the, are the ones that when Christ went to the cross, he had them on, on his heart and on his mind. Just like the, uh, the high priest so long ago bore the names of the children of Israel by his heart on that breastplate as he went about his work. Oh, when Christ said it is finished, the work of atonement was finished for those of us whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the atonement is efficacious only for the elect. And so that is in essence something of the work of the atoning work of Christ as it's set forth before us and the attacks that are brought against. I, I, I hope you see the need to earnestly contend for the faith that is once delivered to the saints. There are some issues that we can disagree upon with regard to those of other denominations, but the atonement, the heart of the gospel, is something we cannot compromise. This is, this is in this phrase, when he had by himself purged our sins, it sums up the, the beauty of the, of the atoning work of Christ. We cannot. Pray that the Lord will, will enable and equip men in our denomination to never yield to the attacks, specifically the attacks of the Church of Rome against this great doctrine of the atoning work of Christ. Very quickly, the session of Christ tells us of a successful Christ. Do you, want, do you want to know whether God views the work of Christ as successful? Look to his session. Simply means to sit, 
to cease, right? To cease, to sit. Passage tells us to say, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What do we mean when we use the term the session of Christ? We are referring to the appearance of Christ at the right hand of God as our sovereign high priest, pleading the virtue of his once for all atoning sacrifice on behalf of his people. This is a, a doctrine that is often neglected. It's not ignored because a lot of God's people understand Christ makes intercession for us. But what is contained in the session of Christ? R.C. Sproul made this comment. When we study the biblical narratives of the life and work of Jesus, as well as the apostolic commentaries on those narratives, we discover moments of supreme importance in terms of redemptive history. These include his birth, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the day of Pentecost, his return. However, there's an element in the work of Christ that we almost completely overlook. It is the session of Jesus Christ. The most important session of all is the session of Christ in heaven. When Jehovah said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, he was saying, be seated in the highest place of authority in the universe. If Christ, on the basis of his finished work, is afforded by God the highest place of authority in the entire universe, that is not only a, a doctrine that we should not neglect. That, my friends, is the strongest motivation to Christian service that you can find within the Word of God. A few things. First of all, upon completion of the atonement, Christ returned to the presence of His Father. Verse 3 tells us, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He returned to the presence of His Father. The fact that He returned to the presence of His Father speaks of a, a finished work. A work for sin that the father was well pleased in. So he appeared before his father's presence, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The second thing is the acceptance of his work by his father merits the most esteemed position. The passage not only says uh, before the, the majesty on high, but sat down on the right hand, which tells us two things at least. First of all, he rules over all things. He's at the right hand of the Father. Again, one of the most applicable passages in the Old Testament to New Testament doctrine. I say it's the most applicable. It's actually the most often quoted passage of, of the Old Testament, whether directly or by inference, is Psalm 110. I don't know if you know that, but... Of all the Old Testament scriptures, Psalm 110 is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage of scripture in the New Testament. What does it say? It's a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord. This is Jehovah said to my Lord. David's saying, Jehovah is saying this to his Adonai, his master. There's another man that David is saying is his Lord here and Jehovah is speaking to him 
And he says to, Jeho- to, to David's Adonai, David's master, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall str- send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. There's a ruling, an act of ruling and reigning in the midst of the enemies of God that this person who David refers to as his master or his Lord, is actively engaged in. That rule coincides with him being afforded this place at the Father's right hand. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. So not only is there a putting down of the enemies of Jehovah. But there's a willing people now in the service of this one who is at God's right hand. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As you sit here at my right hand, the priesthood that often ended with the death of the priest is continuing, represented by the one who is at God's right hand. Thou art a priest forever. The the work of intercession continues. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. this 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 condemns my fretting over weak puny little men and women who are in places of authority that I get, I get so worked up about and want to see them dealt with, right? These people who have such high and lofty views of themselves often can't even see the, the stupidity of their own way of speech. And we've got a guy who can't put two words one in front of another properly can't even communicate in in the English language, yet has such a high and lofty view of himself. What's our view? What should our view be of these, these little men and little women that occupy these places of authority? It should be the view that the Lord has of them. Talking about the Lord. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. Man, that's authority. That's power. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. The most frequently quoted passage in the New Testament is Psalm 110. And it ends with this victorious king lifting up the head. What do you think that means? I asked my son... this (laughs) I said I think I know what it means right it's probably not what you think it means but read the passage again and remember that David wrote this read the section he shall judge among the heath and he shall fill the places with dead bodies he shall wound the heads over many countries he shall drink of the brook in the way therefore shall he lift up the head personally I think it's the image of a decapitated head the success 
over the enemies of the Lord. And this would have been language that David would have understood because it's exactly what he did to Goliath, right? He lifted up the head. What is the, the ultimate indication that this king is successful in battle? He's got the head. He's got the head. Complete, completely vanquished the enemies of the... That's the context. He's filling the places with dead bodies. None who oppose this king shall live to see, to tell the tale. He will be entirely successful. What should be the exhortation to these little men and these little women? Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. You're nothing, these heads of state. You are nothing before the one that sits at the father's right hand. And he sits there and he rules and reigns until all enemies are put under his feet. He sits at that, at that esteemed position. He rules over all things. Acts chapter 2. I'm not going to take time to read the passage. David is quoted again from that passage. And on the day of Pentecost, the apostles pull from Psalm 110 and say, this is something of the fulfillment of that passage. Christ is reigning. So he rules over all things. He also makes intercession. What is Christ doing in his session at the Father's right hand? He makes intercession for his people. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself to often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others, for then he must often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The purging, the work, the great finished work that Christ accomplished, the atoning work. It starts by saying he is now appearing in the presence of God for us, making intercession for us. So the acceptance of this work by his father merits the most esteemed position. And then lastly, the work of atonement never needs repeating. This, the, the work, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Never needs repeating. The one thing that you'll notice when you read in Leviticus about the work of the priest is that as he, as he was about his work, there was never afforded to the priest a seat, right? You've probably heard this before. The priest was always working because he was a picture or a type. His work could not remove sin. And so the next day, the sacrifice had to be brought, and the same ritual had to be done. The priest had to, had to offer the sacrifice and deal with the blood and, and all the ceremonies associated with Levitical worship had to be done every day. The next day, the same thing. The next day, the same thing. There was not a place that was afforded to the priest by God in the Levitical system that gave him rest from his service because the, the, the work had to continue. There always had to be the picture of what Christ would do. It was not the end in itself, the Levitical system. 
But now we find the great high priest who made an atonement for sin through the sacrifice of himself enters into the holy place to present that work to the Father. And what's the language for this priest? He sat down. This is unlike any priest I've ever read about. No priest had the right to sit. But this priest does. Why? Because the work doesn't have to continue. The work's done. Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This strikes at the heart of our contention with the church of Rome over the blasphemy of the mass. This is the heart of their service. This is the heart of their worship, what they refer to as the holy sacrifice of the mass. The Second Vatican Council in December 1963 produced its document on the sacred liturgy. In dealing with the most sacred mystery of the Eucharist, it speaks of the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood, which it claims Christ instituted to perpetuate the sacrifice of his cross throughout the centuries until he should come again. It goes on to speak of the Eucharist as a paschal banquet in which Christ himself is consumed. The sacrifice of his body and blood. The, the mass perpetuates his sacrifice throughout the centuries. Obviously, despite the claims of some ecumenists, Rome still clings to her ancient heresy of the Mass as a sacrifice. This is according to Dr. Cairns in his dictionary in theological terms. The creed of Pius VI, an official creed of the Roman Catholic Church, laid down, in, laid down that position clearly. I profess that in the Mass is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead. Do you have any idea what he is saying about the Mass? He's saying that the Mass, when the priest supposedly changes the, the bread and the juice into the body and blood of Christ and offers that up as a sacrifice to God, the Mass removes the wrath of God against his people to the same extent of what Christ did on the cross. There is no greater blasphemy against the work of Christ that you will ever hear of or read about that goes to the extent of the Catholic Mass. What a blasphemy. What, a, what an insult to the God of heaven who now has given his son this place of prominence on the basis of his work. God must be mistaken. Because the same God that gives Christ this place of prominence upon the basis of his finished work, and he said, sit thou here until I make thine enemies thy footstool, supposedly is the same God that gives some dude the right to offer up Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice. Some man who himself needs to be cleansed from his sin. What a blasphemy against God the Father and Christ in particular. 
Oh, we don't have time to read it. Read Hebrews 10. Read Hebrews 10 about the work of Christ. Oh, we've seen Christ came into the world to purge the sins of his people. They're done. There is no need for a further propitiatory work. Oh, it sounds theological. It comes from the pit of hell. It's it's a deception from the devil himself that would lead men who supposedly understand what Christ did upon the cross to lead them to seek further propitiation, to seek another need for the removal of God's wrath. What a blasphemy. The work of atonement never needs repeating. Why do I know this? Because he sat down. That's it. The work's over. The atonement and the session of Christ and the attacks that are brought against them. Oh, I, I, I long for the day when the Lord raises up a band of men to fill the pulpits of evangelical churches that are not ashamed or embarrassed to cross swords with the church of Rome. That's what I long for. Nothing sickens me more as one who is in Christ than to see men who should know better cowardly give in to the pressure placed upon them by the church of Rome. Oh, there's pressure. A billion people. Got the support of a billion people. There's pressure. And even above that, got the support of the great deceiver himself. Pressure, pressure being brought against men. Pray that the Lord will raise up a band of men who are encouraged in in the book of Jude to earnestly contend. There's nothing that is greater to contend for than the atonement and the session of Jesus Christ. I trust the Lord will write these thoughts upon our hearts for his name's sake. We're going to sing, as we conclude the service, we're going to sing hymn number 623. Hymn number 623. The footprints of Jesus. And we'll stand together as we sing all the verses of 623.